All right. Well, we are, it's my privilege again to be preaching this morning, and we are, I'm doing a mini-series, four weeks on Exodus, which is, means that we're not even going to get close to touching on what Exodus, all that there is in Exodus. Um, but I think maybe we can get at least an idea of where the book leads us, what, what we're looking for. Maybe it'll help you as uh, over these next four weeks just in your own time to go and read and, and discover God in this book in ways that perhaps you hadn't seen before. Um, and I don't mean to do this to my wife because I didn't ask her beforehand, but you guys all, she came late, right? So... Um, <laughs> So I don't know, maybe you noticed that as she walked in late, I don't, I, that she might have been walking with a slight limp and that she has, has an accessory to her ensemble that doesn't really go. Um, she's wearing an ankle brace. And um, the reason my wife is wearing an ankle, it's my fault um, that she's wearing an ankle brace, but let me just tell you the story of why it's my fault that she's wearing an ankle brace. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we uh, had the privilege of uh, being with her family in Montana on the west entrance to Yellowstone, and only about 45-minute drive from one of the premier places in the, the United States to fish for trout. Idaho, uh, the Snake River in Idaho was just 45 minutes away, and uh, we got to fish this section of river. That's it's beautiful. It's if you if you're a, if you're a fly fisher person, uh, it's the kind of thing you imagine this slow moving river, wide and and clear and grassy um, areas all around, and and just it, it's it's one of these stretches of rivers in the United States that is renowned for fly fishing. I got to fly fish there one day, and Heather couldn't go. She was sick, and one of the things that Heather likes to do, she doesn't care as much about fishing, but she loves to float on water. So we decide to go back and float this section of the river. It's very calm, beautiful. You can see the Tetons off to the to the east from where we were, and um, we it, Jonathan, Heather, and I uh, take a canoe and and decide to float this section of the river. Well, there's this one section where the water um, actually gains a little momentum. And there's uh, an elevation change in the river. And so um, there's a, um, there's rapids. And right before you hit this section of rapids, there is a bridge that you have to actually duck down under to get through. So you don't have a lot of time between the edge of the bridge and the rapids. And we had done it the, uh, two days before, my father-in-law and I, and we'd come through it fine. And, and I thought, okay, um, Heather will love this. We, we, um, this will be great. So we shoot this part of, of the river, and knowing that there's actually a place to the left side, the left bank, that we, we would have not had really any, any um, danger of, of tipping the boat. And um, I took my, her brother's, so it's really his fault, uh, 
I took his advice that we, the section we went through we should, of the bridge, there, these pylons, we should go one more over and go through this area. Well, when we do, we duck down, we look up, Heather yells, rock, and right out of the chute, there's just a big rock in the way, and there's nothing you can do about it. And immediately, we're overturned, the boat's filled with water, gears um, floating down the river, Jonathan screaming, I'm telling him to hold on to the boat, I'm trying to hold on and keep him, uh, he's not screaming, like, uh, he's just, he's, he's, I'm sorry, I just embarrassed my son. Jonathan is very calm, and he actually, I start to go under, he pulls me back to the boat, and I really am glad for that. Um, he's a good son. Um, sorry, Jonathan. So uh, we're, we're immediately overcome by this lazy, slow river. And I'm trying to hold the boat and Jonathan together and get to the bank. And it's very difficult. And the river has control of me for a time. And basically all I can do is hold on and wait till it levels back out and I can walk to the bank. And I tell that story once to explain Heather twisted her ankle in that process. The boat uh, caught her ankle between um, the rock and the boat, and she had her foot uh, twisted in that, and it's now been a couple weeks, and it still hurts. And it's my fault. I tell that story, though, um, to piggyback on what I brought out last week about what I think the book of Exodus is addressing and and actually how the book of Exodus is addressing you and me today because in in our lives that's our lives right um, we're floating along everything's calm and cool everything looks great and that may be where you are you may look at your life right now and think this is good. This is beautiful. You're able to enjoy the views. You're able to enjoy the blessing of, of what you're experiencing. But at some point along the way, the boat tips. And it doesn't matter who you are and, and what circumstances you have and what privilege you have or what resources you have. At some point, you're going to be swamped and going to be at the mercy of something that you cannot overcome on your own strength. It's going to happen. And, and as I say that so confidently, um, there's some of you who have never experienced that in a way that I think is healthy. In, in, in some ways, it's good for us to realize, it's sobering for us to realize that what we think we control, what we think we have power over, what we think we have, um, that, that we're going to manage, we really don't. It's not in our control. Some of us uh, here this morning know that so well that, that we don't know what to do about it. That, that we're so um, tangibly overcome and so tangibly in touch with the fact that we have no control over, our, of, over certain things in our lives. That, that we're, we're maybe at a loss, confused. Maybe we feel like because of that, that God has left us. And the, the book of Exodus wants us to see where we go, what we rest in, where our hope is when our lives are upturned. When forces beyond our control seek to swamp us and overthrow us, 
maybe even what it looks like when we are overwhelmed. Where do we go? Some things that look previously benign, like being in Egypt to escape a famine, very quickly can turn to enslavement, hurt, death. That's the book of Exodus. And the book of Exodus is about the way out. I want us to see, I want you to get from this that in, in, the re, in the reality of the Christian life is that we all walk with a limp. That, that the people of God are not those who have not been overturned, who have not been caught in situations that break them. They are absolutely defined by that fact that we have been broken. We are broken, that we do walk with a limp. And what defines us is something else. And we've got to stop living as if the goal is to, is to quit walking with a limp. The goal is to live with your limp in a way that understands something greater than that is at work. Last week we looked at one of those things. And I just want to remind us. Uh, last week we saw that our hope is not in Pharaoh. It's not in getting the right uh, person elected or the right Supreme Court justices or whatever it may be. It's not fixing our culture. It's not fixing our circumstances. Because those things turn on a dime. Pharaoh at, at, turns on a dime. And, he, and what Pharaoh turns on that we looked at last week was he turns on the very thing that's the mark of God's blessing in the life of, of his people. That the very, uh, them being fruitful and multiplying, that was the, the command and the mandate given to them in the garden. The language of Exodus is this is what's now happening in the people. And that's where evil raises its head against God's people. So just because we're being blessed by God doesn't mean Pharaoh won't try to kill us. That's important to understand. Just because we're being blessed by God doesn't mean our boat won't be overturned. Or, we can say it another way, just because your, your boat's upside down doesn't mean you're not being blessed by God. Just because Pharaoh's seeking to kill you doesn't mean you're not being blessed by God. We've got to quit attaching, um, making that correlation wrongly. The other thing we want to see is that God is faithful to his promises and that he is at work in all circumstances. So this week we're going to look at another angle, another slice of this, if you will. And uh, we're going to be looking uh, from, I I put Exodus chapter 2 in the bulletin, but I'm actually going to start back in Exodus 1. And I ask that if you're able to please stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to start in verse 15 of chapter 1. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Ziphrah, the other Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. But the male, but they let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. The midwife said to Pharaoh, 
Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded that all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down and ba- to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews children. Then her sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her go so the girl went and called the child's mother and pharaoh's daughter said to her take this child away and nurse him for me and i will give you your wages so the woman took the child and nursed him when the child grew up she brought him to pharaoh's daughter and he became her son she named him moses because she said i drew him out of the water one day when moses had grown up he went out to his people and looked on their burdens and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and told and hid him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. The word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. You may be seated. Lord, may you take these words... May you take my words and may you uh, season them with grace. May you apply uh, whatever is true to our hearts and may whatever is false fall to the ground. We ask this knowing that only you can do that. We ask this um, for the sake of your people, for the sake of your name. Amen. All right. So we've we've looked at um, briefly reminded you of, of last week and, and what's going on and I, I want us just to walk through what do we do when we're overwhelmed when we're um, when we feel like or maybe in reality that uh, that we're a swamp that that a power beyond our control or a circumstance beyond our control has us in its grips and there's nothing we can do about it 
And what I want, want you to remember about this section of, of Exodus, the first two chapters, every commentator I read points this out. It becomes an important part of the unfolding of the narrative of Exodus is that God is silent. That we don't get God, um, anything from a God's eye view other than a narrative, uh, the narrator, Moses' uh, remark on how God views the midwives' actions. But we don't get something from God's perspective himself until the end of chapter 2. And what we need to see about all of this and everything about this story is to realize that the whole program is in jeopardy. That Exodus is intended to draw us in and to, to help us understand that the scene is cast in darkness, that the scene is cast in death, that the scene is, um, is overwhelming and that the people of God are in jeopardy. They're in uh, Exodus, I mean, they're in Egypt uh, after having been promised to be taken to a land where God would bless them and they would be made a blessing to the nations and they're not anymore. And not only that, uh, or they're not there, they're in Egypt instead. They've been 400 years in Egypt with no signs of going anywhere. And actually things are getting worse. They begin to uh, see the blessing and the promise of God fulfilled in them growing in numbers and becoming a nation. But at that very point, as I've already said, the king of Egypt sets about to destroy them. At the point of blessing, the kingdom of darkness rears its head in their lives and strikes. The next thing we see about this the story and the way it's told is that it's under Egypt. This is the the I don't know how you quantify these things, but certainly in the, the original audience's mind, this was the greatest power that exists on the earth. There is no other kingdom with the might of Egypt. And there is no other phrase that could strike a fear into your heart than the king of Egypt is after you. The king of Egypt, the most powerful man in their world, had the power to destroy their lives. If he wants people dead, he gets it. And then... The story gets us to an even uh, more profound uh, sense of darkness and being out of control because the way the, the king of Egypt goes about his program of eradicating the, the Israelite people, the Hebrews, is by having the midwives take babies at birth. And I can't imagine a more... V a picture of more vulnerability and powerlessness than the image of a child at the point of birth being taken to death. That the most powerful man in the most powerful nation is lashing out at the most vulnerable, weak, powerless of his enemies, of those he hates. And everything about the, the story of Exodus and the way it opens is to help us see that the, the people are in jeopardy. That this, this nation that's been promised all the way back from Genesis 12 to Abram is, is on the brink of destruction. And not only that, the promise is in jeopardy, the promise of a nation, the promise of land, the promise of blessing. And here's what I just want you to see that I touched on last week that, that we've got to see about the story of Exodus and the way it opens. Though God is silent, 
we are to understand that he is at work in all of this. That none of this is out of his control and none of this is out of his design. And wh- how, do we, how do we begin to see that? Well, I think there's some ways that we, we um, see that in terms of, of the way the story's just told. The first thing is, is that, um, that the, narr- the, the writer of the story wants us to see that blessing is being unfolded. That the, the promise and the hope of, of the kingdom and the promise to Abram is on the mind of God and the mind of the writer. That's at, at hand. That's what's being worked out. And so the question is, will it, will it survive? Will the promise survive? But it's still there. God is at work in this in the way that um, the midwives stand up to Pharaoh. That these these women take great risk in their their lives to their lives by standing up and saying, no, we won't do that. They fear God and they refuse to kill the children. There's also a couple other things that begin to uh, work themselves out in the birth of this narrowing in on this one particular child is this the great irony. And if you would have... Um, I don't know if you would have been a one of the first readers of this. You the the irony throughout this would would have gripped you. But one of the most profound ironies is the way Moses actually survives. Moses actually survives um, by his mother doing the very thing that the Pharaoh tells her to do. Right? Throw your baby in the river. That the, the story wants you to see that that somehow this great picture of Pharaoh's power and the greatness of Egypt, the Nile River, and their glory, and the place where death is supposed to come is actually the place where life is 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 saved, is rescued. That as she, we don't know exactly what she's doing when she. Some people, I guess I'll say it this way, some people look at it and say she kind of gives up the faith by putting her son in the river. But what the writer wants you to see is that there's something else at work in this reality when she puts the baby in the river. Let me just point some things out. The woman conceived and bore a son, and my text said when she saw that he was a fine child, and some people think that she looks at him and thinks he's handsome and worth saving. He's a good-looking kid. Uh, but rea- the, the, I think uh, there's something actually more specific and, and bigger than going on in that statement that he was a fine child. The word there is actually the word that Scott talked about in terms of God's view of creation. Uh, that it's actually she looks and sees that he is good. And I think the original audience would have certainly understood, especially with all the other creation illusions in this, in this story, they would have understood that there's something about uh, God's redemption of creation, of all of creation, it, that's being worked out in this boy. That she sees that, and, and that word is used intentionally to help us understand that there's something else going on in this story. He's good. The other thing that we see in the language of the story is that she hides him in a basket. But the word that's used there that's translated basket is actually the word that's only ever used in the Bible for the ark. It's used twice in Exodus for this basket, but it's only ever used anywhere else in the Bible for the ark. That this boy is placed in, in an ark. 
that he's placed in the water. And we see that there's something else going on and that the hope of, of God's people, that the, that the, 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 the fear that the promise will be lost or the people will be lost narrows in on this boy and it narrows in on an ark in which this person is placed, this good person is placed, this one who reminds us of God's goodness in creation and what he's after in redemption. And he's placed in a basket and he's placed among the bulrushes or among the reeds that he is actually, and uh, by the way, just another thing, he, it, she daubs it with bitumen and pitch. It's the same elements that Moses uses to seal the ark uh, from, uh, from water in, in Genesis. Everything about this story is, is being told to say that something else bigger than the king of Egypt is at play here. Something else bigger than the kingdom of darkness is, is at play here. And, and it's not only that it's bigger than, but even as great as the king of Egypt is, even, even as much as the fear would be stricken into your life by the mention of the king of Egypt and his order, that his, his, own, his own orders become the way in which God brings about deliverance. I don't mean to ruin the story for you, but this little boy grows up to be the one who God uses to deliver uh, the people from, from Egypt, right? We all know that. The, the that this narrows in, it goes from this wide-angle oppression to this little boy, this little vulnerable one, this one who is placed on this river. Um, and, and we don't know what's in the mind of the mother, but we have to assume that she had great fear and she stood off watching, hoping. And it seems like she's, she's at least hoping that at this time of the day, maybe uh, one of the, the Egyptian women will take and care for her child so that he doesn't die. Because they're watching to see what happens. But whatever it is, she is, has done this and put her child at some risk. But this risk is also being worked out um, in terms of an ark and the story of God's uh, past salvation. The narrator, the writer wants us to see that in order to bring about the, the raising up of God's man to deliver his people. And see, the reason this is important for us is oftentimes... Um, our question is, where is God in all this? Right? I mean, that's the common question. And in some ways, it's an honest question. We look at something that's awful, atrocious. Uh, the the uh, order to murder uh, babies is, is awful. To enslave a people, to seek to destroy them and abuse them is awful. Cancer's awful. The death of a child or a loved one is awful. The evil that infects our lives, the sin that entangles us, that traps us, that trips us up, all the things that are seeking to, um, to overwhelm us, they're awful. And our question becomes, where is God? And see, here's, I think, our logic, a couple of things I think we do. Uh, one, we say, I can't see God, therefore he must not be in this. He must be absent. I can't see it. He must be absent. In this text, he's silent. He must be absent. 
Actually, one commentator says of this text, which I, I don't know how he, he gets this, but he says, all of this unfolds at the hands of the decisions of people, and if they had to change their minds, God would have had to change the way he went about bringing about the deliverance of his people. And I think everything about this story is saying, Pharaoh, you king of Egypt, you think you're great? I'll deliver, I'll deliver my people through a boy who's thrown in the river just like you said. I'll show you how foolish your program really is. It's actually, we're told that as, as uh, Pharaoh oppresses them, that they grow even stronger. That they increase even more. That the folly of Pharaoh is shown on its face. And the irony drips from the story that here's this boy that is thrown in the river. And what winds up happening? Pharaoh raises him. Pharaoh pays his way. Pharaoh pays his mother (laughs) to nurse him. Do you not get how funny that is? That here's this boy that's cast off. That's left in, in a sense for dead. Under the command of Pharaoh, and and because of that command of Pharaoh, Pharaoh winds up paying his way, educating him, giving him the the all the skills that he will need at some point to deliver God's people. We've got to stop thinking that just because we can't see God, he must be absent. Or we can't think that I can't see how this is good, therefore it must be out of God's hands. One of the privileges of Exodus Exodus 1 and 2 is that instead, you've heard the phrase, um, you can't see the forest for the trees. And, and you know, most of us, when that's said, I don't know what that means. (laughs) What does that mean? Um, What that means is that uh, you're so caught up in the details, the thing in front of you, that you don't understand the big picture. And in Exodus 1 and 2, what we are allowed to see is this 40 years of history, and more actually, We go from Joseph being alive to Joseph being dead, uh, 400 years in Egypt, and how this, uh, in two chapters, we see this condensed period of time, and what we are able to see by that is that though the details are awful, yes, they are. There's no denying it. We're also able to be lifted up, and we see the forest. We see that God is actually bringing about deliverance through the circumstances that seek to destroy the very promise of God. So part of how we understand how God works in our lives, in our own uh, sorrows and the things that swamp us is to believe that we may be locked in on the trees and just may not be able to see what God is doing in the long run. But in reality, what we can be assured is that God is at work and he is at work for the good of his people, always, in every circumstance, no matter how awful and tragic. And that's hard to believe. When it's so close to home. But in order to see that God is moving this thing by his own hand, even when he's behind the scenes, uh, and in seeing that, we have hope in the midst of our own circumstances. Let me just say this again. This does not simply mean that God is um, playing catch and whatever bad circumstance comes our way, he's going to... um, simply work it for our good. 
I think part of the act of belief is that he's actually pursuing our good in the midst of all circumstances. All circumstances. And I want you to understand this. This means even your sin. And this doesn't make us say, oh, well, I sin, but God's at work in it. But it actually helps us see that um, we're not cut off from God because we're in sin or we've fallen in sin. And let me just maybe prove this to you a little bit. Moses, once he grows up, we watch the story unfold and and um, he sees, he goes out and he's, he looks like he's intentionally gone out to observe what's happening in the life of his people. And what he sees is an, an Egyptian man beating one of his fellow kinsmen. He went out, verse 11, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. And Moses, in that reality, he looks around, evidently conscious of the fact that he, he, he's going to give away something if he if he takes action i don't know what is going on in moses mind there's a lot of speculation Um, it seems to be that moses could have as a prince in egypt could have potentially killed um brought down justice on somebody and and not uh not had any repercussions i mean he has his great authority in this in this nation so maybe what's going on is that he knows he's actually a, a Hebrew and Pharaoh knows he's a Hebrew and he knows that if he comes to the aid of one of his, his fellow kinsmen that the suspicions will be confirmed, that the suspicion that this man in my court could be danger for me in the future, could actually be a, a, a risk to, to my power and authority. It seems like that, that's at least plausible as to what's going on in the mind of Moses, but he goes and he strikes down the Egyptian. He kills him and he buries him and once he does that um, it's evident that he's he's out of line right it's premeditated he he's he's looked around he knows that if he does this and gets caught that he's in trouble and come to find out when later on when it's known and when he finds out the pharaoh's known he has to leave he flees and, and this is what I think we do in, in our sin. We're like Moses. We have this, um, this event, this thing, this past thing. Maybe it's last night for you. And you look at it and you think, there is no way that God can now have anything to do with me. And we just bolt. And we're told that Moses goes into the wilderness. And actually what we find out is he goes to the backside of the wilderness. Moses doesn't just go live on some rock. He goes and lives under some rock. He goes to the most obscure place that you can think of in your world. Maybe it's like uh, those people when I worked in Alaska who were running away from past up there. (laughs) There's a lot of those folks up there. Um, that, that, that somehow if you just go to Alaska that you can leave all this behind Moses goes to the wilderness and not only that does he go to this obscure place but he becomes really one of the most he takes up the most obscure profession that you can take up uh, he's a, he, he becomes a shepherd um, that, that's, that's not a, uh, um, a high uh, class sort of job that you can take up as a matter of fact, we're told in Genesis that it's, it's, a, it's an, uh, a hated position. It's an abomination to the Egyptians in Genesis 46 to be a shepherd. And Moses sort of 
Um, I, I, we don't know what goes on, but it, it seems like he realizes he makes a mistake. He realizes that um, his, uh, his place in the kingdom is in some sense forfeited, and he winds up in this place that's the most obscured that you can imagine, doing the most obscure thing that you can imagine, and marrying a Gentile woman. And that's who God uses to deliver his people. See, even through the circumstance of Moses running, even through the circumstance of Moses committing this act that he doesn't want to get caught for, and when it's exposed, his life is at risk, even in all of that and being uh, forced to run into the most obscure place, doing the most obscure things, he winds up being the very man that God uses to deliver his people. And see, for us, when we, are, uh, when we are swamped or when we find ourselves doing something, taking matters in our own hands or sinning in some way, that we have this great uh, uh, cloud over us and we think we're out of, uh, out of God's hands and there's no ability to be used. And what we see, secondly then, out of this passage is, first, if it's that God is always at work, even in circumstances where we may not see it. Secondly, we see... That God actually saves us in our weakness and vulnerability. That God has actually chosen to save that which is weak. He's chosen to work among the vulnerable. He's chosen to work with the obscure. He's chosen to bring his salvation in and to and through the, the most broken, vulnerable among us. And the story drips with it. Not only is it the story of Moses, but if you, if you notice, there's only a few people whose names we know. And there's a very important person's name in the story we don't know. We don't know the Pharaoh's name. And the commentators write pages and pages and pages trying to figure out which Pharaoh is it. And, and, and they question, in some sense, some of them question the historicity of this because they can't pin down the Pharaoh. And the whole point is it doesn't matter who the Pharaoh is. He's obscure. Do you know who is named that should not be named? The midwives. Do you know who brings about all the deliverance in this section that we've read? Women. Women. Women in a culture that would have been the lowest on the, on the, the totem pole in terms of their place and position in the society. And not only that, uh, Moses' uh, the, the, the children of Israel are delivered through two midwives whose name we know. And a midwife in this culture would have been not only a woman, right? So she's already handicapped by that. But, uh, but a midwife would have... Tr- most likely been a woman who was not able to, to give birth to children herself and would have been given the, the duty to care for the, the, the community's children. Nothing in this culture could have brought more shame and sense of lowliness than to, to be a woman who was not able to bear children. Their identity was wrapped up in it. Their their position, their worth and value. These are the two women that are named in the text. 
that God has actually chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He's chosen, chosen that what is weak in the world to shame the strong. What you are to understand about your out-of-controlness, about the things that swamp you, about the things that actually show so clearly to you and those around you that you're broken and flawed, that you are weak, are not the things that remove you from God's use and value but are the very places where he works. They're they're the very things that he's after. They're the very kinds of people that God delivers. And he actually subverts the power structures of that world through these weak and lowly people. The midwives actually thwart the plan of Pharaoh. And I'm not sure they're entirely honest about what they're doing. I don't know if that bothers you. But they don't tell the whole story, right? We at least know they they keep a little bit back. And I don't know what it means to be vigorous in childbirth, but to me it sounds like it's made up. (laughs) It sounds like something you'd say that you you really, the Pharaoh would be like, huh, really? (laughs) That's your story, right? But God is at work. God is at work. And what we're going to see further, further along is that he, he shows up on the far side of the wilderness. He shows up under Moses' rock to meet him and to call him and to empower him and gift him. And actually what he winds up doing is coaxing Moses back. He, he, God is, is so patient with Moses because Moses has run and Moses is afraid. And Moses keeps saying, I can't go back, God. I don't have the power. I don't have the speech. I don't have the gifts. I will, uh, the people won't accept me and Pharaoh won't accept me. And God keeps saying, no, Moses, you're the man. I'm calling you. Which you've got to believe in order to uh, continue along this path of what it looks like to, uh, to understand what it is to be delivered and to deal with your, your, the things that swamp you in your life is to understand that God is at work at the most weak and vulnerable places in your life. The other thing I think you have to understand is not only are you weak and vulnerable, but God actually delights in using you. God actually works for you and through you. That you're not a cast off. You're not uh, lesser in the kingdom of God. That he delights in this. And let me just apply this in some ways. Some of what it means for us is that we, of all people, the church, should care about the weak, the lowly, the vulnerable. We, of all people, like the midwives, should look on those in those vulnerable positions and care for them. And this means... See, I, I, think, I think maybe when I say that, you're thinking, you generally might be thinking about the people in our society that are poor, um, hungry, uh, without housing, and, and that is true, absolutely true. And I'm not, try, I'm not trying to diminish that, so don't hear me say that. 
But what I don't think we think is I don't think we think often of the sinners who struggle with particular sins that we find very uncomfortable. And, and I think that we often think of our community as uh, not only a community of the redeemed, but a community of uh, the, I don't know, the perfected. Uh, we, we treat uh, by uh, explicitly or implicitly, we treat those who are, are overwhelmed in sin as, as people who have no place among us. Or if their place is among us, they need to get their acts together. And this is why many, many, many of us who have grown up in the church have known the experience of figuring out what it looks like to make it look like you got it all together. Because in reality, that's what we communicate to the watching world is that Christians are people who, who think you ought to have it all together. And if you don't, when you come among us, you need to act like it. And those are also people that we have got to care for and about, partly because we understand that's us. See, the problem, the reason we don't care about the vulnerable is because we don't understand our own vulnerability and our own powerlessness. Part of the reason that God calls his people throughout the Old Testament to care about the vulnerable among them is because that was them. And he reminds them of that. You weren't a people. I made you a people. You were uh, enslaved in Egypt and I brought you out of Egypt. And you have got to care for the outcast among you. Whoever that is. That's not just socioeconomic. It is socioeconomic, but it's, it's also spiritual. It has to do with sin. God calls us to care for the vulnerable. I'll make another side point maybe since I brought out uh, our engagement with culture last week. It's just notice that one of the deliverers in, in this story is Pharaoh's daughter. An unbeliever. An unbeliever who has compassion. A, a Gentile who looks on pity, looks with pity on Moses. Um, so I, I, this is, I don't want to get too bogged down in this. But this means that we can share in some ways in this endeavor with those who aren't Christians. There are those that, that aren't Christians who have compassion and pity and want to care for vulnerable people. And we can partner with them in it. And God uses them. That's all I'll say. Pharaoh's daughter. God is at work even there to deliver Moses. Last thing then I want us to see about this passage. And how it points us to our hope. In the midst of being overwhelmed. In the midst of uh, having our boat turned upside down, is, is that it's not only the promise of the people that hangs in the balance in all of this, but it's the promise uh, of a son. Uh, there's this great passage in Genesis 3.15, uh, after the fall, where God says to Eve, and if, if you've been around Redeemer long enough, you, you know this is a go-to passage, but the reason it's a go-to passage is because it's so important. That Eve has promised a son to overcome the effects of, of their sin. A, a son that will destroy... My phone's ringing. A, a son that will destroy the enemy uh, of God's people. The, a son that will, will destroy the serpent. 
And Eve thinks that she's going to give birth to a child. And that's why she names uh, the first one Cain. I've gotten. Or is it Abel? I'm just Abel. um, I just scared myself. She, Eve, puts a, a hope, and the hope, God puts hope of redemption in a son. So does he, he does the same thing with Abram in Genesis. Genesis 22 says it this way, And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemy. And Paul picks up on this in, in Galatians and says, That's the promise of a singular son, one who would uh, deliver God's people, the one who would overthrow the effects of the fall. And one of the things that we have got to see that's being worked out in the story of Moses, it's been in the liturgy, it's been in Scott's prayer, is that the hope of a son is not found in Moses. It's pointed to in Moses. And the only way that you and I will actually believe that God is at work in all the awful circumstances in our lives is to understand that the most awful of circumstances was the one that took his son to the cross. That, that, that the conspiring and conniving, that, the, that, the, that the, the, the command to kill all the boys in the Gospels, in Luke, is... is a picture, it's a reminder that, and, and of this story in Exodus, but it's a call to understand that God has put himself in the place of vulnerability. That God is actually in Christ and his son has come and made himself the lowly and the vulnerable. He's made himself the obscure and the outcast. He's, he's gone into the wilderness and been rejected. He has been, Revelation tells us, that a great dragon stood waiting for the birth of this child. Waiting to devour it as soon as it was born. That the imagery of God himself putting himself in the place of vulnerability so that he might redeem us instead of floating on top of the river, instead of escaping by providence, the hand of Pharaoh, The promised son is overwhelmed by the flood. He's plunged under it. He is swamped and overcome. He feels the weight of forsakenness and loneliness and shame. See, we won't care for the outcast among us, unless we understand how God has become outcast for us. How he has become the one overwhelmed by a flood so that he might set our feet on solid ground. He has delivered you from death. He has delivered you from sin. He has overcome the dragon. And he did this all for the weakest among us. Do you find yourself hurting? Do you find yourself questioning where God is? 
Do you find yourself questioning, how could God be good to me in the midst of this? The one thing that this story points us to is the idea that a son will come and he will take our place in that so that we might be delivered through it. Not from it, I'm sorry. Not from it, but through it. That it will not overwhelm you. It will not destroy you. It cannot take your life. And not only that, it cannot take your usefulness to God in his kingdom. No matter what. Moses is potentially a murderer on the run. David surely was a murderer. Paul was a murderer. You've got to believe that God delights to show his power in your weakness. Whatever it is, whatever. Amen.